0: So we're looking at Acts chapter 28, and we're starting at verse 17, and we'll read till the end. It says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that every word is spoken against." When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For these people, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should hear, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, uh, when I was a child, I went to the Hershey's Chocolate Factory in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, the factory has this ride that you can go on where it just, you know explains how chocolate is made. And the first thing, of course, they show you is uh, they take you to a farm and show you how uh, there's so much milk that's required to make the chocolate. And then they go on from there and show you how the chocolate beans are, the cocoa beans are roasted, and they're made into chocolate liquor, and then it shows you how all the different ingredients are mixed together and heated up to the, certain, to the right temperatures, and uh, then finally how they're put into molds to make all the different kinds of chocolate that Hershey makes, and then finally packaged into uh, the different packaging. And then after you leave and you walk out, there's an attendant that hands you a Hershey's chocolate bar. And I remember as a child going there, and I was just amazed at the whole process and how uh, a chocolate bar that I had eaten so so many times was made, and all the different ingredients that went into making that chocolate bar. Well, we've been looking at the book of Acts for a number of weeks, and I think that as we look at the book of Acts as a whole, I think it's kind of like a backstage tour in the growth of the church. We see the church starting in Jerusalem with just a, a few disciples who are kind of timid, kind of scared, and then the Holy Spirit goes upon, comes upon them, and then there, these disciples come, turn into a worldwide movement. And as we look at the book of Acts, I don't think it's simply history, it's not something that's just simply informative for us to know, but I think that as we look at the book of Acts, we can look at and describe ingredients that are necessary for the church to be the church, or more specifically, for the church to be used mightily by God. So what are these ingredients that are necessary for the church to be the church, for God's power to move in an incredible way through the church? Another way of putting that is what would it take for our church, the church in the United States, to look like the church in Acts? For God to do the wonders among us that He did in Acts. Well, the first ingredient we see throughout the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. We see throughout the book of Acts that the disciples are filled with and led by the Spirit of God. From the very beginning, the start of their ministry, Jesus leaves and then the holy spirit comes upon them and the holy spirit empowers them and leads them in ministry and he's the one who directs them as jesus directs them to do the things that jesus commanded we see several instances in the book of acts where the disciples are led by the holy spirit in acts 10:19 to 21 it says that while peter was pondering the vision the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? Acts thirteen two to 4 it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Acts 16.7 says, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. The Holy Spirit is the one who directs and empowers the ministry of the disciples. Way back when, when we started studying the book of Acts, traditionally the book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles. But as we looked at that title, we, dis- we discovered that that isn't quite accurate. More accurately, it's the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry is continuing through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the disciples' ministry. It's not their work. It's God's work through them. As we're studying in the Bible study, experiencing God, as we looked at the first week this past week, the whole main gist of it is that God is already at work, and we need to join him where he's at work. It's not that we come up with our own plans and then say, God, would you help me accomplish these things? God is already at work, and our job is to figure out where he's working and join him in that work. But how often do we do the opposite? How often do we figure out what we want to do or feel like we should be doing a certain thing and then ask God to bless us rather than finding where God is working? Years ago when I was in high school, my family and I went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while we were there, I was able to take some surfing lessons. Surfing is a very easy concept. It's very simple, the the principle of how you surf. It really didn't take much in terms of the lessons, but actually doing it was very, very difficult. So the basic idea is, you know, you have a board and, you know, you attach it to your wrist so it doesn't uh, go away if, if you fall off and so you get on top of the board and hold on to it and then you look for a wave to come and once you see a, a pretty decent sized wave coming then you start paddling and paddling to get some momentum and then at right at just the right moment when the wave is right upon you you have to stand up and then ride the wave into the shore well I would do that and I would see the wave start paddling but oftentimes I wouldn't time it right. I would either jump up before the wave had already passed, uh, way before the wave had already passed, or way after it. So a number of times I jump up on the board, and instead of moving, I'm just kind of standing there trying to balance and not going anywhere. It's a simple concept, but it's hard to do. And the thing was, it took a lot of effort to do that. It took a lot of effort to jump up there and to balance, but I wasn't going anywhere. And I think the same thing is true in the way that we sometimes try to serve God. We put forth a lot of effort, but when we're not in touch with the Spirit of God, we're just kind of spinning the wheels. We're working hard. We're trying to balance. We think we're doing something for the kingdom of God. Maybe we even have the right motives. But God's Spirit is not moving, and so we're not going in the direction that we want to go. And God is not accomplishing what He wants to accomplish. That's why almost all of the great movements of God throughout Scripture, they were not started with action. We think when when, when God is going to move, it would start with people acting and doing certain things. But they started with prayer. Why do they start with prayer? It's counterintuitive that they would start with prayer in a sense. But they started with prayer because as God's people prayed, they saw where God was moving, and they, then they walked forward and said, I want to be a part of where God is moving. And then God's, and through God's Spirit, change occurred. So that's the first ingredient we see in the book of Acts that is necessary for the church to be used in a mightily, mighty way by God the holy spirit the second we see throughout the book of acts is obedience we see throughout the book of acts that god's people are obedient to the commands of jesus acts 2:42 says and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers In acts 5:29 when peter is told not to preach the gospel peter and the apostles answered we must obey god rather than men have you ever had a conversation at dinner time with maybe a spouse or a friend that went something like this? Uh, again, it's dinner time, and your spouse asks you, "So, what do you want to do for dinner?" To which you respond, "I don't care. Whatever you want to do." Then your spouse says, "Well, I, I don't care either. Just pick something. What do you want to do?" And then you say, "Okay. Well, why don't we go to Panera?" And then your spouse says. Well, I don't know about Panera. It's a little bit expensive. Uh, last time I went there, it wasn't so good. You're like, okay, what about Chipotle? Well, I had Mexican yesterday. I I don't know. I'm not really feeling it. And you're like, well, how about we just eat at home then? Well, we don't really have anything at home. I don't know what we'd eat at home. And then you get to the end of it, and you're like, why did you even ask me? (laughs) I mean, if you had these strong feelings about what you wanted to eat, why did you even ask me? And I've been on both ends of that conversation. I've been both per- persons in that conversation. You know, but you think about that, and I wonder if, in a sense, when God sees the American church, sometimes maybe God asks us the same question. Why do you even ask me what, you want, what, what I want you to do? To a church that wants God's blessing, that wants God's protection, but doesn't want to do God's will a church that puts Bible verses on Facebook or on the walls in their homes, but anytime there's anything that's a bit uh, challenging that would cause us to change our behavior, then we recoil from those things. I wonder if God would ask us that question. I think sometimes what we do is we pledge obedience to the unknown and we're disobedient in the known. In other words, what I mean by that is sometimes we'll ask God, so just tell me what you want me to do, and I will walk forward in obedience. You ever thought that before? If God would only make it clear, crystal clear what I should do, then I would walk forward in obedience. But then there's things in our life that he has made crystal clear, that he has told us that we either should be doing or shouldn't be doing, and then we don't do them. We know that God has told us to give up a certain addiction, and yet we continue in that. We know that God has told us not to engage in sex outside of marriage, but we do it anyways. We know that God has told us not to be filled with greed and the love of money, and yet we do it anyways. Now these are crystal clear things. Things that we know that God has told us to do, and yet we don't do them. But then we say, God, if you show me what to do, if you want me to do this, if you want me to do that, I'll be obedient. And I wonder if God is sometimes like, well, why do you even ask me? I mean, if you're not obedient to the things that I'm telling you clearly to do, why do you think you're going to be obedient for other things that I haven't told you to do yet? People, disciples in the book of Acts are marked by obedience. Luke 6, 46 to 49 says this. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built, well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Tragically, I've seen this reality played out in the lives of so many people. People who have an appearance of godliness, people who it seems like are on the right path. But when a trial comes, when a temptation comes, it becomes clear that their heart is not for God. We see examples of this in the early church as well in in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira sell a piece of property. They claim they've given all the proceeds to God. They weren't under compulsion to do that. They did that of their free will. But they said they gave all of it. They didn't. In its essence, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. We saw Judas, who spent so much time with Jesus and yet hadn't submitted to Jesus as Lord, and how he's replaced in the early part of the book of Acts. But in order for God's power to move in his church in remarkable ways, we need to be people of obedience. We can't expect God's blessings and God's favor and God's power to move among us if we're walking in disobedience, if we're walking in deliberate, willful sin. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I don't feel God's presence. Or I don't feel like God is answering my prayer. Or I feel like God has abandoned me. Now, there could be a few different reasons for this. This isn't always the case. But one reason for that is perhaps you're walking in disobedience. See, sometimes we expect our relationship with God to be very different than relationship with other people. Let's say you have a friend, a longtime friend, been a good friend for years, and you know exactly what that person likes, what that person doesn't like. And there's some things that you have done before that really frustrate your friend and your friend has gracefully communicated those things to you. And yet every time you're with your friend, you do those things that frustrate or annoy your friend. Now you've been a friend for a long time. You've been friends for, for ages. And so your friend is not going to decide to he or she is not going to see you anymore. But can you expect that relationship to be filled with joy? Can you expect that relationship to be close and intimate? It's not a reasonable expectation because you're doing things that that person, uh, that annoys or frustrates that person. It makes sense in in physical relationships, but sometimes in our relationship with God, we want a close relationship with God. We want to feel God's presence. We want to feel God's blessing. We want God to answer our prayers, but we don't want to do what God wants. In order for God's people to experience the wonders in the book of Acts, we need to be people of obedience. So that's the second ingredient. The third ingredient is a little bit different. The third ingredient is suffering. When complimented on her homemade biscuits, the cook at a popular Christian conference center told uh, the legendary preacher Harry Ironside, just consider what goes into making of these biscuits. The flour itself doesn't taste good. Neither does the baking powder, nor the shortening, nor the other ingredients. However, when I mix them all together and put them in the oven, they come out just right. When you're baking something, of course, not all of the ingredients taste good. Some of them do. You might take a taste of a spoonful of sugar when you're baking, but you probably wouldn't take a spoonful of baking soda. In the same way, there's these ingredients that are necessary for the church to be to, to move, for God's Spirit to move in a remarkable way, and one of them is not so palatable, and that is suffering. But Jesus makes a promise—a promise that we all wish He hadn't made—in John sixteen thirty-three. Jesus says, "I said these things that said these things to you, that in me you may have peace." He says, "In this world you will have tribulation, but I take heart. But take heart, I have overcome the world." We all would rather glance over the part that says, in this world you will have tribulation. He doesn't say you might have tribulation. He says you will have tribulation. Let's not forget what's happening here in the book of Acts. What's happening here in the book of Acts is outright warfare. The Spirit of God, the kingdom of light, is invading the kingdom of darkness. Through the message of the gospel, the disciples are going throughout the known world, preaching the gospel, preaching freedom to the captives, preaching the reality that there is hope and there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of hell rages against that message. All of hell rages against the disciples. And as a result, there are casualties. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. James Brother of John is martyred. Paul or Peter is imprisoned. Tradition tells us he's later martyred. Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, ridiculed, stoned, imprisoned. Eventually, tradition tells us he was killed as well. Hell rages against those who are following after God. I mentioned this before, but I think it. Uh, is worthy of repeating. One of the most powerful sermons I ever heard uh, was from a man named Dr. Russell Moore. First, uh, one of the first messages I heard in seminary, and his basic point was, now that you've decided you're going to follow after God and be a minister of God, Satan is coming for you. Satan wants to destroy you. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us who are following after God. We're making a difference for God's kingdom. Satan wants to throw you off the rails. He wants to destroy you. If you're just kind of coasting through life, not doing anything for the kingdom of God, he's just going to be content to leave you where where you're at. And if you never face opposition, you never face uh, any kind of suffering, then maybe you need to ask yourself, does hell really care what you're doing? Because when you're doing God's will... When you're following after him, hell is angry. Satan will seek to destroy your soul. We know that he cannot destroy our souls, but he can destroy our witness. He can destroy our ability to preach the gospel and share his love with those around us. We fight not with weapons made by hands, but with the love of God and the word of God. Now this is a sobering reality, a reality that most of us would probably say we wish it didn't exist. We wish suffering didn't exist. But there is hope. Jesus says that he has overcome the world and that we can have peace even in the midst of suffering. We talked about that at length last week. The apostle Paul in Philippians 4:12 to 13 says this, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can endure suffering, we can even have joy in the midst of suffering. You may have heard the name Kayla Mueller this past week. Um, this week they were trying, uh, she, she was a uh, Christian aid worker, human rights activist who was captured by ISIS in 2013. Uh, was brutally tortured and then eventually killed. And this week, they were actually trying two of the men who were her captors, who uh, tortured and killed her. She worked among the poor and the downtrodden before she was imprisoned, and she wrote to her family before she was imprisoned. she wrote, I find God in the suffering eyes reflected in mine. If this is how you, God, are revealed to me, this is how I will forever seek you. Somehow during her imprisonment, she was able to uh, smuggle out a letter that got to her parents. And in that letter, we don't know exactly when that time frame was or what had happened to her up to this point. But in that letter, she wrote this. She said, I remember Mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only thing you really have is God. I have come to a place and experience where in every sense of the word... I've surrendered myself to our creator because literally there's no one else. By God, by your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. I have been shown darkness. I have been shown in darkness light. And have learned that even in prison, one can be free. I'm grateful. I've come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. The reality of the battle doesn't have to overcome us. Even in the midst of the most severe trials, Jesus' light shines through. Suffering is a reality of the Christian life. As Paul and Barnabas reminds the cities of Lystra, Iconium and Antioch in Acts 14.22, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's the third ingredient for God's spirit to move among us in a powerful way. The fourth is perseverance. We see throughout the book of Acts that the disciples are determined to proclaim the message of the gospel no matter what. They will not take no for an answer. Nothing and no one is able to stop their resolve. This is shown uh, very clearly, most clearly in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, 19 and 21 says this, But Jesus came from Antioch and Iconium And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. You see, Paul was left for dead. They had to kind of check his vital signs to see if he was alive. And yet he got back up, went into the city, and the next day he was preaching the gospel again. It's incredible resolve, incredible perseverance. And we have a mission that is straight from God. And opposition cannot derail us. The only thing that will cause us to fail is if we give up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this, the only fight which is lost is that which we give up. During his time as the U.S. Division head of Wycliffe Bible Translators, Bernie May wrote a newsletter. And in one of the newsletters, he wrote about a couple named Ken and Neve Shoemaker. And Ken and Neve Shoemaker had been supporting Wycliffe for a number of years. They were now in their 80s, mid-80s. And yet they never gave up. They never stopped fighting. They never stopped doing what God had called them to do. Ken said this. He said, we're on our last lap. He said, but we're committed to spend three hours a day in prayer, mostly for Wycliffe people. He said the other day, Neve was awfully tired. She said she didn't know whether she was able to pray for the full three hours. I told her, come on, don't don't let up. We've got to finish the course. He says, that day we prayed for three and a half hours. The calling for us as believers is not to give up. Maybe some are who are listening today. Maybe you feel like you don't have anything to offer. Maybe you feel like you just can't do anything for the kingdom of God anymore. Maybe your health is failing. Don't give up. God still has a purpose for you. Stay faithful to the end. God calls us to perseverance. So we see these ingredients that are necessary for God's spirit to move in a powerful way. When we get to the end of, this, uh, of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been through a whole lot in his life. The shipwreck, the imprisonment we looked at last week. These other trials being stoned, imprisoned, ridiculed. And then we looked at how his story came to a close. His story closes well. Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. People are coming to him from morning to night and he's proclaiming the gospel to them. And then the During this time frame, he wrote some of his most influential works. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. The book of Acts ends this way. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, what's the significance of this ending? I mean, it seems on the surface that it's, the story just kind of stops. We don't know, we're not told by Luke what happens to Paul. We're not told about the end of his life. So why does it stop here? Now, some scholars suggest that perhaps Luke didn't know what happened to Paul, that this was written before the end of Paul's life. However, other scholars believe that it was written afterwards, and Luke actually did know. And, and I'm, I tend to favor the latter view Because it says in the text in verse 30 that he lived there two whole years. Now, if if this situation was still ongoing when Luke was writing, you would think that he would say, well, Paul is still there. He's still preaching the gospel, but he doesn't. It says that he preached there for two years. So if that is the case, why might Luke end the story this way? Why does he end with Paul in Rome preaching the gospel with boldness and without hindrance? I think perhaps what he's trying to do is he's trying to proclaim that the gospel is winning. That the gospel that had started in a room in Jerusalem has now reached the furthest layers of Roman society. That it's now reached the capital of the known world, Rome. And the gospel is winning. But it's also open-ended. Because this is not the end of the story of the church. This is the beginning of the story of the church. The revolution has begun. Light is invading darkness. And now the church continues. And there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, but the 29th and the 30th and the 31st are being written by were written by further generations of the church. And so I believe that Luke is trying to communicate that the gospel is going forward, that light is invading the darkness. And I think we learn something very important in this. And that is that faithful servants cannot fail. Faithful servants cannot fail. We see Peter, Barnabas, Paul, faithful servants who did everything they could to preach the gospel... And they cannot fail because they're not on simply their own mission. They're on God's mission. They're doing what God called them to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gates of hell cannot stand against God's church. As believers, all we need to do is be faithful to the calling that is before us. To follow and rely on the Holy Spirit. To walk in obedience. To endure suffering and to persevere, to never give up. And when we do these things, we cannot fail. Because it's not our mission, it's God's mission. And we're simply the vessels that he uses to proclaim his gospel to the world. Faithful servants cannot fail. May we also be found faithful in our calling to reach those around us with the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work of your spirit. We thank you that you don't call us to win in our own strength. We know that you've already won the victory. And through your power, through your Holy Spirit, you call us. You choose to use us to reach your world with the gospel, to show your love, to be your hands and feet, to proclaim your gospel. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we rely on you. May we walk in obedience. May we endure suffering. And may we never give up. Lord, give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to do that. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that you'd move in our midst in a powerful way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.